Yes, we all know that Joe Biden is the president of unity. That's what he said in that wonderfully recognizable, feeble voice of his during his inauguration. Unity. 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 We have had anything but unity. All we've had is partisan politics like we've never seen it before. It's gotten even worse than it was when they were going after Trump. Now they just want to roll over everyone and don't want to govern uh, with any sort of unity. Democrats are always for unity when they're not the party in power. Then everybody needs to work together. But once they take over, unity goes out the window. Screw you. We're in charge now. We don't have to work with you. That's what they've always done. That's what they always will do. Hi, everybody. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another National Preview Online podcast. If you have not already done so, please subscribe to the show. You can do so by going to either your native app store, the iTunes app store or the Google Play store, depending which device you prefer to use, and download the NPO podcast. It's free. And just hit subscribe. This way you'll always be notified whenever a new episode of the show is uploaded. If you prefer a third-party podcast aggregator app instead of using your native podcast app, simply download the free Podbean app available in either of those Play Stores, and you can subscribe that way. Any way you subscribe, you can listen You can make comments, you can leave reviews, and we please ask you to leave reviews. We would love for you to leave reviews either in the iTunes App Store or the Google Play Store, because the more positive reviews we get, the greater the show will grow, and the more we'll be able to bring you in the way of offerings, such as a call-in line, perhaps, and uh, some guests as well, which we look to do down the road. For the time being... We're relying on just yours truly to give you perspective that you're not getting in other places. You know, conservatism in this country was something that didn't have a voice back in the, uh, in the 40s. The Democrats really controlled Congress once FDR got control um, of many facets of the country. His policies, his socialist policies, rule the day. The situation had gotten so bad by the mid-50s that the late William F. Buckley Jr., who had just burst upon the scene after graduating Yale and published his groundbreaking book, God and Man at Yale, um, founded the National Review magazine. And in his words, National Review magazine was founded to stand athwart history and yell, stop. And that bastion of conservatism uh, led the way for probably the following 50 years uh, or more. It changed, though. Buckley became the editor emeritus of National Review, having retired. He left it in good hands, but he was still there overseeing things. But when Buckley died in 2008, National Review changed course, in my opinion. It is not the National Review of old. And that's what prompted me to start National Preview Online. Now, it was originally envisioned to be more of a website, and it is a website. We have it. Uh, And I periodically mention this. We're going to be going back pretty soon to start posting articles on that website authored by myself and other people. Uh, We have not done that 
uh, lately because I only have so much time in which to get these things off the ground while I tend to other matters. And so the podcast, which has been like one of the fastest growing methods whereby people get their information, uh, struck me as being the ideal way that I could more readily communicate with more of you because it's more passive. You don't have to actively go out and bring up the website and read an article by me. You don't have to take time out of your day uh, to read an article by me. By virtue of these podcasts, you can simply tune in, download the uh, episode, and put it on Bluetooth in your car when you're driving on your morning or evening commute. It's a very convenient way, very passive way of consuming information. Now, there were other conservative voices, but the time that Buckley came by, that's all there was, was just Buckley. And before he came by, there was nothing. It's readily acknowledged that Buckley and his um, teachings, his writings, his philosophies were instrumental in the election of Ronald Reagan. And then, late in the Reagan administration, a new voice hit the scene. The late Rush Limbaugh, starting the Rush Limbaugh show. And no one could have envisioned when he started just how popular and influential he would become and how many weekly listeners he would have. Now, while it's true that National Review magazine was read by the elite, by the who's who in conservatism, in government, and was influential perhaps with those policymakers. It is also true that it never reached the masses the way Rush Limbaugh did. And even Bill Buckley's great firing line show, broadcast on PBS for over 30 years, the longest-running show in history of television, never reached the masses that Rush Limbaugh reached. And it was Rush Limbaugh, the first nationally syndicated conservative talk show host, who laid the groundwork for everything you now know and treat as a matter of course. The Sean Hannity radio show, the Fox News Network, the Sean Hannity TV show, Tucker Carlson on TV, Laura Ingram on radio and then on TV. All these people, Mark Levin, only possible because of Rush Limbaugh. And now Rush is gone. His show is still on. They're playing highlights of past episodes and current substitute hosts that subbed for him while he was still alive and he was sick or whenever he was on vacation before he was sick, like Mark Stein, Buck Sexton, and so forth, are hosting the show and playing clips of his. Now, how long that will go, we don't know. But talk radio and the conservative voice lost a great deal when Rush Limbaugh was called home by the man upstairs. But fortunately, we have alternative ways of commuting with you that weren't available when Rush Limbaugh first took the airwaves by storm. Now, Rush Limbaugh started podcasting the show as part of his paid website membership. So if you missed the show, you could download it. I often downloaded his show because I use podcasts in the same way that most of you do. I didn't have time during the day to listen to three hours of Rush with all the commercials, but by subscribing to his website and downloading the podcast, I was very easily able to get a three-hour show in an hour and 40 minutes time with all the commercials stripped out. So between my morning ride up and my evening ride back, I could consume the entire show. Well, I don't try and make my shows that long. I try and make them 
anywhere from 25 to 40 minutes, 45 minutes tops, so that you can conveniently consume it and digest it. We need your support. Podcasters need your support because we may become the only unregulated way that we can communicate with you. The Democrats would just love to bring back the fairness doctrine, the doctrine which Ronald Reagan eliminated, whereby you had to have equal time. You see, because Democrats and liberals really can't compete in the arena of ideas, so they need government-enforced equal time provisions in order to be able to do it. Their ideas just aren't appealing. They're basically just playing Santa Claus. They're going to give everything away and hope that the people they give it to will repay them by continually voting for them. And it's worked for them for a number of years. Far too many. But we, in the podcast community, the Dan Bonginos of the world, the Laura Ingrams of the world, men like that are trying to carry on that tradition. And I have added my name to that list. And I think that with the limited resources that we have available here, we do a pretty good job of of bringing you information and a perspective that you don't always get every place else. And we want to continue to expand that. So please, not only subscribe, but please take the time. Send out an email or a text with a link to one of the shows, one that you thought exceptionally good. Send it to a friend. Send it to a dozen friends. Send it to 10 dozen friends. The more people you send it to in these formative stages... You are the people that can grow this audience. And we're also on Parler. And every episode we do, I upload the link to the show to Parler. So you can very easily, if you don't have time to text or email, you can upvote it, you can share it, you can share it on your feed. Anything you can do will help grow this show. So please, if you can do it, We'd appreciate it. And so I mentioned Santa Claus a few minutes ago, and that's part of the theme of today's show. Incoherence and Santa Claus make poor bedfellows and even worse policy, both foreign and domestic. By now, it's come to no shock to any of you that the southern border is wide open for anyone who wishes to cross. No one will be sent back. All are being released into our population without any medical testing for COVID. Now, we're not shocked that this is happening because we knew Biden would do it, but exactly who are these people and how are they getting here? And how are they getting here in such numbers? I mean, they made it known. People were massing up knowing that Biden was going to be inaugurated. They were massing up uh, getting ready to go to the border. Well, I'm going to tell you. Drug cartels are responsible for sending a lot of these people here. The drug cartels want to keep our border police working uh, overtime, just trying to keep illegals out of here or having to snatch them up as they cross the Rio Grande. So they're getting it two ways, two ways to Sunday. One, they're uh, occupying our law enforcement capability on the border with these illegals that they're sending over in droves. And two, they're shaking down these illegals to get them passage to the border. From this article in the Epic Times from McAllen, Texas, illegal border crossings are coming into the United States, uh, border crosses, excuse me, are coming into the United States wearing wristbands 
that relate to the smuggling organization or cartel that they paid to cross the river, according to new reports and confirmation by Border Patrol agents. The wristbands have been spotted on illegal immigrants in the Rio Grande Valley in South Texas, as well as discarded on the ground beyond the river. Some illegal aliens are found wearing two different colored wristbands. The system, quote, basically outlines a process that the smugglers are using to know who paid and who didn't so they can start moving them through because they've got so many people backing up. This, according to Jason Jones, a former captain in the Texas Department of Public Safety. The wristbands have numbers and words and logos on them. We've seen turtles, devil heads, little snakes. Uh, The Gulf Cartel is using the word metal to signify a certain leader on the Mexico side. A cinder block wall directly across the Rio Grande from Romo, Texas, has CDG and metal tagged on it. It's in the Mexican city called Miguel Alamein, which is the front line in a territorial battle between the CDG and the cartel del Noreste, a faction of the Los Zetas cartel. So you see, the drug dealers are all in on this. They're the ones that are, that are forcing this issue, uh, and they're the ones that are really becoming the true beneficiaries of it. We certainly are not. We are suffering with more people to take care of, with reduced resources for American citizens as a result of these people coming into the country. And it's actually a a treasonous act to allow these people to come in. But we have politicians here who are aghast over them coming in. And you'd be very curious to know who they are. We have Senator John Cornyn. uh, Entering America illegally must have consequences, according to Senator Cornyn. Well, I agree with you, Senator Cornyn. So if you think that that's the case, why were you not more supportive of President Trump when he was struggling to retain his presidency and fight for honesty uh, in the past election? Fraud was readily apparent. It was rampant. It was open to anyone who was willing to see it. The math doesn't lie. Now, all of a sudden, you're shocked and you're offended by people are coming in. In Laredo, Texas, Senator Cornyn met with a group of mayors, county judges, and community leaders to discuss how this crisis is impacting them. He said they discussed the mess of the immigration courts, which have a backlog. Are you ready for this? 1.2 million cases. Quote, here's a direct quote from the senator. And in fact, The human smugglers and drug cartels know that because of our laws and our failure to offer consequences associated with illegal entry into the United States, that we will never get to those 1.2 million backlog cases, and that people can simply evade the law by refusing to show up for their court-appointed date. Now, under the old days, we would, one, stop them coming in. That would be the best way to go. And then, having had fewer people coming in because our deterrence was better. There were fewer people that we needed to send our law enforcement people out after who failed to show up for their court dates so we could arrest them, seize them, and deport them. That is a thing of the past. Border Patrol told me, this is the senator speaking again, the average smuggling fee for cartels to bring a single unaccompanied child into the Del Rio sector was more than $7,300 per child. That's incredible. But that's the kind of money they're making. 
If they can make that kind of money smuggling kids across, who needs to be in the drug business? It seems that the, uh, the smuggling business, human trafficking, is even more profitable and perhaps potentially less risky. But Cornyn is not the only one bemoaning the border situation. We have Senator Joe Manchin. Now, Joe Manchin, for those of you who don't know him, is a Democrat from West Virginia. And he's more conservative because of the um, demographics of his state. In fact, I'm surprised how uh, Joe Manchin got elected. But if he doesn't curry favor with the conservative voters in his state, he will no longer be the senator from West Virginia. He also could have foreseen this and could have crossed party lines and supported an investigation into the fraud in the election so this situation wouldn't have befallen us in the first place. Now, the White House, the Biden administration have repeatedly refused to use the word crisis, but this is what it is. It's a crisis. We simply cannot handle people coming into this country on the orders of magnitude which we are seeing it on the southern border. Now, in an interview with CNN, and that should tell you something, because anybody that speaks to CNN has got something wrong with them, the Clinton News Network, the Communist News Network, the network that you have to go to the airport to see because nobody watches it, although now it's changing a little bit because people are leaving Fox News, but why go to CNN? In an interview with CNN, Joe Manchin went further than the administration by describing the situation at the border as a catastrophe. Whatever message was sent, it was sure interpreted the wrong way, Manchin told CNN, referring to the Biden administration. It's a crisis. Oh, it's a crisis. Now, Joe, why didn't you see this coming before? You knew what was going to happen if Trump didn't get reelected. Why didn't you do it? Now, the White House is acknowledging a big surge. Uh, you know, a border surge is a big problem. You got Press Secretary... Jen Psaki telling reporters on March 15th that the administration is currently assessing whether to add additional facilities for unaccompanied minors or children who cross the border illegally without an adult. I'm surprised they used the word illegally. I'm surprised they just didn't say for people who cross the border in an unauthorized fashion because they're undocumented or unauthorized. They're not illegal, oh, heaven forbid. But this is what we get. Now, that not just finished. We also have Senator Lindsey Graham talking about the problems with the border situation, in that the border situation makes immigration bills much harder. See, the surge in illegal immigrants crossing the American southern border makes reaching an agreement on immigration much harder. Quote, it's going to be really hard, said Graham, to get a bipartisan bill put together on anything that has a legalization component until you stop the flow. That's what he told reporters on Capitol Hill. Illegal border crossings breached 100,000 in President Biden's first full month in office. Another 26,000 evaded capture, according to Jason Jones, who I mentioned before. Uh, The situation has sparked the reopening of shuttered bordered facilities to house unaccompanied children and the designation of a convention center in Houston to hold up to 3,000 immigrant T 
teenagers. Now, how come we haven't heard anything about the Biden administration keeping these children in cages? Well, I'm going to tell you why. Because it's the Biden administration doing it, not the Trump administration. Just like you didn't hear about it when the Obama administration was doing it, and they did it before the Trump administration did it. It's only a problem when the Republican does it. It's never a problem when a Democrat does it. And Donald Trump, in addition to being a Republican, was also hated by them. So that was two reasons to highlight it. Now they have no reason to highlight it. They have every reason to hide it. And that's exactly what you're doing. But I want to go back to this comment by Graham, where he says that it's going to be hard to put together a bipartisan bill on anything uh, that has a legalization component until you stop the flow. We've tried this in the past. We've heard this song before. Reagan signed an amnesty bill saying that, all right, that's it. We'll let these people in. They're in. We're going to legalize them. But that's it. We shut it off. And it's only gotten worse since then. You've got to close the border. No one can come in. And that's it. And you can't have any more amnesty. We've already taken more people than we need to take. In my opinion, I might trust an amnesty bill if Trump were in there because I knew that Trump would absolutely seal the border if he had a second term. He would seal the border completely. He built hundreds of miles of of border wall and fence, and he was building more. But with these people, I have no guarantee they're going to seal the border. You can't have any legalization component. You have to eliminate that legalization component so that a future administration, if they have the wherewithal to do it and they have the inclination to do it, can legally be allowed to deport these people. Once they're legalized by an act of Congress, you can't throw them out. You can't use the court system to throw them out. So I am against any legalization of these immigrants. They've got to be removed. Meanwhile, people who want to come from Europe, they can't get here. They can't get here legally. Very difficult to smuggle across an ocean. And the people in Europe are the type of people we might want. People more educated, people who are willing to work, people who have a different cultural ethic. When Europeans moved to this country in the early part of the 19th century, uh, uh, mid part of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century, they would scrub the streets in front of the tenement houses, the apartment buildings where they lived because they felt that it was what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to keep your homes clean. A man's home, a woman's home is their castle. People from these third world countries, they don't have that sort of ethic. Now, I'm not trying to be racist. I'm just telling it like it is. I've said this on this program before. You come here, and I give you a form in English, and you can't fill it out. I don't hold it against you, because I wouldn't be able to fill out a form in Spanish if I went to Mexico. But when I go to Mexico and they hand me a form that they want me to fill out, and it's been translated into English, I can fill it out, because I'm literate. You give a form to these people that are coming from the other side of the border, you give it to them in, in Spanish, they can't fill it out. They're illegal in two languages. I mean, sorry, they're illiterate in two languages. They're not fluent in English, and they're illiterate in their native tongue of Spanish. All they can do is speak it. They can't read it. They can't write it. That's the bottom line. So you can't go crying that I'm picking on somebody. I'm just stating the facts. Many people come here ignorant. What are we supposed to become? The vocational training center for the world? 
Not only do we allow you to come here, but we spend government money teaching you what to do and how to do it so you can become marketable. No, why can't we have an immigration policy that's more coherent like they had in Australia? Now, there's a country that came full circle. It started out as a penal colony for the Brits where they sent every manner of debtor and criminal they could or, or terrorists that they could to get them as far away from England as possible. Now, if you have a criminal record, you can't get off the plane. They won't even let you in the country. You want to emigrate there? Fine. You can emigrate there. They'll only take you if you have a skill. And while all this is going on, while our borders are being made more porous by the day, while China goes stronger by the day, this same party that's bringing us this domestic strife by way of their open border policy is calling for a slash of the Pentagon budget. 50 House Democrats calling on Biden to slash the Pentagon's budget by a whopping $700 billion. Well, maybe we should stop giving 90% of the $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief bill, which has nothing to do with COVID, 90% to do with foreign aid. Maybe we should come out and cut out this foreign aid to these third world dumps that we're giving money to. And then we'd have plenty of money for the defense budget. We wouldn't have to cut $700 billion. Why are we cutting $700 billion from our own defense to give it to third world countries when China is on the rise? It makes no sense at all. This is a communist party. This Democrat party, it's not the party. If you're a Democrat out there listening to the sound of my voice, the current party that uses the moniker Democrat is not the Democrat party that you knew if you're an elderly person when FDR was alive. It is not the Democratic Party that JFK was part of. It's not even the Democratic Party of Lyndon Johnson or even Jimmy Carter. It has gone so far left that it has left America, to, bar- to borrow a Ronald Reagan uh, phrase. It is now the Communist Party of America. They just didn't change the name yet, but that's exactly what it is. But 50 lawmakers from the Democratic Party, signed on to this nonsense. And that's exactly what it is, nonsense. Now, while all this is going on, while people are flooding across the border in droves, while people are being released into the population, no medical testing, your children are not being allowed to return to school in many states either part-time or at all. A few states have full-time, red states. But if you live in New York, if you live in New Jersey, places like that, your kids aren't back in school full-time. You're lucky if they're there part-time. And even when they're there part-time, it's the same as if they're not there at all. Because in order to make it consistent, everything is following an online learning protocol. All the classes are online. Why? Because not every kid can be made to return to school. So some of the kids elect to do full-time remote so that they can't be left behind. The tenor or the character of the in-person learning is no different than the remote. Basically, they're just orchestrating what they're doing online. They're not allowed to give you special attention. They can only help you with what you don't understand via the online program. That's it. They're not giving you any more attention. So basically, it's in a different different learning posture in its entirety. And these kids are not the problem. If the teachers are that worried, let the teachers get vaccinated. 
The kids don't seem to get sick when they get the COVID. As I've said before, 94% of all people who have died from COVID in this country had 2.6 other pre-existing conditions or comorbidities, comorbidities as they call it, uh, before they got the COVID. Only 6% of all deaths in this country were from people that were otherwise in perfect health. So this is just a sham, and they're using it to bankrupt this country and and take us in a direction that nobody could have envisioned prior to this coming coming to pass. But this is not being lost on parents in New York City. Now, my businesses, my primary businesses, were devastated by the COVID. And so I'm not in the position that other people are in to avail myself of what I'm about to tell you. But parents are abandoning the New York public school system in droves because there are people living in Manhattan in particular whose livelihoods were not as negatively impacted because they work in the sort of industries whereby they can work remotely. So their income streams haven't been disrupted. They can afford to pay for private schools, and they're doing it. In an article that appeared in the New York Post a few days ago, March the 10th, parents are abandoning troubled New York City public schools for private education. Let me pull some quotes from this. Even with the announcement of New York City high schools reopening later this month, public school parents are pissed. The March 22nd reopening of the city's 488 high schools sounds like a positive step, but parents aren't rejoicing since the hybrid model still leaves a majority of students learning from home. Half the city's high schools will resume full-time in-person instruction for those who signed up, leaving about 80% of teens still learning remotely, just as I said. It's something, conceded Tribeca mom Marlo Bamberger, who transferred her ninth grade son to a private school in January, but unfortunately, teachers who opted to work remotely still aren't coming in. So kids go in to learn on Zoom while wearing a mask. And isn't that rich? You go into the school, and there's not even a teacher in the room. So what the hell's the point of going in? Now, I can say that in my son's school, he's in middle school, when he goes to school, there are teachers there in the school. But I have to ask him, maybe some of the teachers aren't. Maybe they're not there. Maybe they're all going remotely. But the very fact that you're asking kids to come into school, saying, hey, you can do blended learning if you want. Come on in. And when they get there, they find that the teacher's not there. How laughable is that? As far as I'm concerned, if the school is in session and the kids are in the classroom, the teachers have an obligation to be there. And they don't want to be there. Invoke the Taylor Law, like I said last month on this show. Invoke the Taylor Law. It's a job action. One day's pay, I'm sorry, two days pay fine for every day that they're out. See how fast they come back to the table. All it takes is a pair of cojones on the part of the mayor to invoke it. He's the one that's the sole determining factor. He doesn't have the doesn't have the sand to do it. But that's how quick you could end this. So you have teachers not coming in and kids sitting in a classroom with a mask on doing a Zoom session. Ridiculous. The teachers receive permission from the city to do this for the entire year. They could have a math teacher watching the class while the social studies teacher zooms in from home. It's a mess. On Wednesday... Uh, Staten Island City Councilman Steve Mateo blasted this practice in a letter he posted on Twitter saying that is not in-person learning, it's just a glorified version of remote learning, and that's exactly what it is. 
Now, we got rid of the school chancellor, but we got another doll in there now who I don't think is going to be much better. But the parents have had it. They're leaving. They're sending their kids to private school, and that's it. There's a whole host of families mentioned here. Now, private skills can cost a lot of money. It's a lot of financial stress. It's not available to everybody. But it's going to be something that people are going to look at. And I'm going to tell you where most of this is going to go. If you go to a real upscale private school like York Prep or something like that, you're going to pay 75000 a year. Many private schools can be had for 50000 a year, but who's got 50000 a year to spend on private school? The parochial schools are going to be really having the doors beat down because those are the only private schools that are anywhere remotely within the price range of many working families, four, five, six thousand a year. That's a bargain compared to what some of these schools are going. But mark my words, as people get back to employment, people are going to do everything they can to get their kids out of the New York City public school system. And the New York public school system better wake up, and the New York City's teacher union better wake up, and Mike Mulgrew, the head of the New York City public uh, teachers union, Better get his head out of his rectum soon or he's going to find out that he's going to be deposed because his membership is going to throw him out for giving ill-fated advice that resulted in the collapse of the public education system in the city of New York. That's what you got going on there. But we're not done. There's more. There's still more. Policy comes from the top down. Right now at the top, we have a dimension-ridden fool who doesn't know where he is, and he really doesn't know where he is. But this is the type of laissez-faire leadership we're up against. Incoherent policy at the border, incoherent policy domestically, incoherent policy from a foreign policy standpoint, and here we have Biden. No press conferences, no direct interviews with people, one interview since he's been in office. No State of the Union address. And they want you to believe that there's nothing wrong with him. A great article written today in the New York Post by Michael Goodwin, an editorial piece. Bubble Biden, clearly not up for tough questions or the job. Let me read from this article, which I think will (laughs) amuse you. It's early, but not too early to give Politico the Scoop of the Year award for this. Quote, The president so far has surprised some of his former colleagues and allies with a largely gaff-free White House debut after a lifetime of verbal stumbles. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Now, those of you who know what I'm talking about, those of you who know Biden, those of you who know what's going on this past month, know that this is ridiculous, this statement. The president so far has surprised some of his former colleagues and allies with a largely gaff-free White House debut after a lifetime of verbal stumbles. Yes, we all know that Joe Biden has had a lifetime of verbal stumbles. But why should you be surprised that he's gaff-free? He's not allowed to say anything. And everything he does say is written for him on a teleprompter. The article goes on, the hoops you have to jump through and with your eyes closed to reach a sweeping conclusion like that is what makes it award winning. 
First, you must at least temporarily steal your mind to reject any contrary facts, including that President Biden has not held a press conference, meaning the chances for gaffes and inanities are basically zero because he always gets to read from a teleprompter. You also have to overlook the fact that he is only slightly more willing to give interview requests, which also reduces his chance to screw up. Finally, you have to pretend that he didn't commit the many gaffes he committed when he did venture to talk with the media. You see, folks, when you read things like this, you recognize what I've been saying and others have been saying all along. The media is so in the tank protecting this man because they know he's completely out of it. Back to the article. Other than that, good job. That's how you win the big prizes in Washington. Only later, in an on-the-other-hand sequence, do the political writers admit the contradictions that obliterate their opening. The most notable is that they point out that after Biden's lone interview since taking office, excuse me, with CBS, the White House, quote, had to clarify his comments on whether Trump would receive intelligence briefings. That's a biggie. They had to clarify his comments on the fate of the $15 minimum wage. That's a biggie. And they had to clarify his comments on what Iran needed to do in negotiations surrounding the country's nuclear program. So if you want to know why he's hiding, there you have it. Three major clarifications after one interview is a good reason for Biden not to do another interview. But look, no gaffes. So it's hard to argue with it, right? No, this is not the way you govern. The story, in some ways, is typical of the big picture, which shows now that Donald Trump is gone, the media are free to return to trivial pursuits to protect their chosen president. For four years, we were assured that journalism was about saving American democracy. Now journalism is about nothing. That might be reasonable if there was nothing to cover. But the willful blindness illustrates how most of the Washington press corps has put aside the brass knuckles it used on Trump and taken out the pom-poms to cheerlead for another Democrat in the White House. Michael Goodwin, I have to tell you folks, Michael Goodwin is hitting it dead on with this op-ed piece. You just can't get any better than this. He goes on, if they were serious about covering Biden seriously, the media would examine the elephant in the room instead of just mentioning it. Why exactly isn't the president of the United States available for questions? After all, he just signed one of the largest stimulus bills in history, a $1.9 trillion monster that we can't pay for that throws money around like the tooth fairy on a drunken binge. Didn't get a single GOP vote in either house, despite Biden's claims that he wants bipartisanship. A good question to ask would be if he still wants bipartisanship, and if so, what is he willing to give to get it? Ten Republican senators got the brush off when they offered to work with him and then were insulted by the White House. Does he regret that? Here's a good question. Here's another good question. The stimulus supporters are making wild claims for what it will achieve, saying it will reduce poverty by a third this year and ultimately cut child poverty in half. 
Can Biden explain and defend those claims, which seem preposterous on their face? Then, of course, we have the border crisis. The point, my friends, is that there is so much that doesn't add up here that they could question Biden on, but they won't do it because they know that he's a feeble-minded fool and he's not running the government. Meanwhile, we're all being stuck with the pay tag. $1.9 trillion going to everyone but you. We're the ones that have been laid waste by this virus, not medically, not physically, but by the inactions of stupid governors in blue states that took an opportunity to try and take down the president, and now they're stuck with it. But they like it. They like the fact that they can control you. Do you realize that that idiot up in, up in Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, is now telling people in a cigar lounge where people are going to smoke that if they lower their mask in a cigar lounge, they're going to get fined? Well, how the hell do you puff a cigar with a mask on your face? You can socially distance in a cigar lounge. Breathe in the smoke, exhale the smoke. Stay away from each other the same way you do in a restaurant. What the hell's the problem? Just a way of government seeking to, every, to use every contingency to enhance the power within itself. They're using it to come up with a de facto smoking ban. Once government gets a taste of power, they never give it back. They never give it back. So here we are with an incompetent president who doesn't even know he's alive. Here we are with a flood of people coming across the border. Here we are with a cacophony of Democrats crying about lowering the defense budget by $700 billion when our greatest rival on this planet, the Chinese, are growing and expanding in the Pacific. The world is upside down. The world is upside down. Lobbyists, aides, and underlings are running the country while Biden snoozes it away and is drugged out. This is what it's come to. We're now a banana republic with a puppet sitting in the White House. And you are sitting on a flagpole with no way to get down and you can't climb any higher as the water rises around you threatening to drown you. You can't make this stuff up. And that's sad. For National Preview Online, I'm Jamie Dury.